Romans 9 through 11 was written in order to address the problem of Israel's unbelief. That problem may be summarized briefly in this way. We've been unpacking it over the last three weeks. God apparently made to Israel an unconditional promise of an everlasting covenant and everlasting salvation. They will be my people and I will be their God. Yet Israel has rejected the very Messiah whom God sent to mediate this everlasting covenant. Therefore, it appears as if the unbelief of Israel has triumphed over the word and promise of God. It's verses 1 to 5. Now, this is a massive existential problem for the church because the church, according to Romans 8 and numerous other places, appears to have been included in this everlasting covenant promise. Does this mean that the word of God may potentially fail with regard to us as well? Well, Paul's response to this apparent problem is to say that the problem is only apparent, not real. Because God never promised to save every individual Israelite, but only those Israelites whom he had chosen. Not according to human will, not according to human works, not according to human merit or birth, but according to his own sovereign purpose of election. Which Paul demonstrated from the examples of Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau. That's verses 6 to 13. But this answer raises violent objections from a fallen humanity that is, as Luther said, curved in on itself and radically committed to the principles of self-determination and autonomy. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. The first objection found in verse 14 essentially says that's unjust. It's unjust for God to choose one and not another. Paul answers this objection by referring back to Exodus 33 and to Exodus 9, to God's word to Moses as well as to Pharaoh, in order to demonstrate that an essential attribute of God's being and nature, right? Exodus 33, show me your glory. Show me what you are like. Who are you? And God says, I have mercy on whom I will. An essential attribute of God's being in nature is the absolute sovereign freedom to dispense mercy and wrath according to his own purpose and will. It's verses 15 to 18. The conclusions which Paul draws from these truths are found in verses 16 and 18, which form the very core of Romans chapter 9, verse 16. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And verse 18, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. But that raises a second objection. If God has already determined the eternal destinies of every man, how can he hold any man accountable if every man acts only according to his will? And no one resists God's sovereign decree. In response to this objection, Paul doubles down on the absolute freedom of God to do with his creation what he wills. He says the clay has no right over the potter. He has no claim over the potter. It cannot object if 
The potter chooses to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another vessel for dishonorable use. What if, Paul says, God's ultimate aim in the demonstration of his glory as the full resplendence of his being and his character to the vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. And to this end then, he also prepared vessels of wrath through which he would dis- demonstrate his holy wrath against sin and his omnipotent power and judgment. What if that is the case, as indeed it is? Can man object, Paul asks? Well, who are you, O man, to answer back to God, he says. Paul then turns from what we might call a theological argument to an historical analysis in order to show that this appears to be exactly what God has done. He uses the Old Testament prophets Hosea and Isaiah in order to demonstrate that God has made Gentiles who were not his people into his people. 25 and 26, while at the same time carrying out his sentence of judgment upon Israel and saving only a remnant, 27 to 29. This is not the end of the story for Israel, as we will see in Romans 11, but it does go to prove that God is indeed doing and has done what Paul says he does, namely to show mercy to whomever he wills and to harden whomever he wills. Now, at this point, Paul could have ended his argument, and I think he would have succeeded in his justification of God. Who could argue with what Paul says here? What possible objection would overthrow Paul's defense of God's absolute freedom to choose one for mercy and another for wrath? To be God is to be sovereign, and we must let God be God. But this, if Paul were to stop here, it would not reflect the balance displayed in the rest of Scripture between God's sovereign freedom on the one hand and man's moral responsibility on on the other. That's why Romans 10 exists in the Bible, including the last four verses of Romans 9. For having explained both salvation and reprobation, In terms of God's predestining will, Paul turns right around and he attributes the present state of things, namely the Gentiles are being saved, Israel's accursed and cut off from Christ. He explains that in terms of each's response to the righteousness of God found in the gospel. The main point of these verses is that, from a human perspective, Israel is accursed and cut off from the covenant because they sought to establish their own righteousness and did not submit to God's righteousness. And the Gentiles are being saved because they have not sought to establish their own righteousness, but instead have submitted to the righteousness of God and received that righteousness by faith. That's why the Gentiles are being saved. That's why Israel's been rejected. Simply put, the Gentiles are being saved because they're believing the gospel. Israel is accursed because they've rejected the gospel. Now, you may be wondering, how can this be? And you wouldn't be alone. Well, which one is it, Paul? Does salvation depend upon God's purpose of election? Or does it depend upon man's response to the gospel? Which one is it? And Paul's answer is, yes. It's both. But we need to be careful. 
What we have here is not a hopeless contradiction. It's not a hopeless paradox. It's not even, with all due respect to J.I. Packer, an antinomy, as he calls it. The two, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, fit together in a way that is, to a certain extent, understandable. The link between the two, I think, has already been given to us in Romans 8.30. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. The effectual call of God that awakens sinners and overcomes their rebellion and their unbelief and inevitably brings forth from them the free response of faith is given to those and only those whom God has predestined, says Paul in Romans 8.30. God elects those whom he will save. God calls those whom he elects. Those whom he calls believe. Those who believe are justified. Those who are justified are saved. But, and this is the very crucial point, both God's election in eternity past and his calling in the present occur beyond the realm of our awareness. We're not aware of those things. We can't see them. We have no knowledge of the hidden counsels of God. The book of life, which is the book of the elect, it remains sealed until the day of judgment when it will be brought forth and opened according to Revelation 20. Furthermore, we're not immediately aware of God's call. We're not immediately aware of the new birth that results from it. What we're aware of is the experience of conviction of sin, fear of judgment, hope in the gospel. And what feels to us like a free and willing embrace of Christ by faith. Therefore, from a human perspective, it is entirely accurate to say, whosoever will believe on the name of the Lord will be saved. The Gentiles believed, and they're saved. The Israelites remained in unbelief, they're cut off. But it goes still further. I think it's more than just a matter of perspective. It's a matter of reality. Our choices are real choices. They arise from real desires, and they bring about real consequences. Contrary to the popular caricature that's often thrown out there when you begin to talk about God's election, the sovereignty of God does not turn us into puppets, moving whichever way the puppeteer determines and and pulls. That analogy fails on every level but one. Namely, that it's true that every movement of man is determined by the will of God. Ephesians 1.11. But here's why it fails. God has infinitely more knowledge, wisdom, and power than a puppeteer. God is more than a man. And he has infinitely more resources at his disposal than string. And human beings are infinitely more complex than wood and glue. We're more than puppets. We are image bearers of God. We have personality. We have rationality. We have morality. We have spirituality. In other words, we need a different analogy. The puppets doesn't work. We need an illustration. And the Bible's full of them. I'm going to invite you to turn back with me to 1 Kings chapter 22. 
In 1 Kings 22, we find the story of King Ahab's third war against Aram. Ahab is upset because the king of Aram has captured the territory of Ramoth-Gilead, which belonged to Israel. So Ahab sends a message to Jehoshaphat, the, the godly and righteous king of the southern kingdom of Judah. And he asks him to go to war with him against the king of Aram in order to recover Ramoth-Gilead. Now why on earth Jehoshaphat would enter into a political and military alliance with the godless king of the north over a territory that has nothing whatsoever to do with him is beyond me, just goes to show that sometimes righteous people do dumb things. And this is a dumb thing. Before Jehoshaphat will agree to go to war with Ahab, however, he requests that they first inquire of the Lord in order to see if God will give to them victory over the Arameans. So the king of Israel, he gathers together 400 of his own prophets. The only problem is they're pagan. And they in unison declare to Ahab, go up, for the Lord will give you into the hand of the king. Well, Jehoshaphat's not impressed with Ahab's pagan prophets, and he says, is there not another prophet of the Lord of whom we may inquire? And Ahab says to Jehoshaphat, well, there is one man of whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah, the son of Imla, but I hate him because he, he never prophesies anything good concerning me, only evil. Jehoshaphat insists, however, so Ahab calls for the prophet named Micaiah. All the while, the pagan prophets continue to prophesy certain victory over the Arameans. Well, the messenger from Ahab comes to Micaiah the prophet, and he tells him of the situation, and, and he gives him some advice. He says, uh, Micaiah, the other 400 prophets are all saying that Ahaz and, or Ahab and Jehoshaphat, they're going to be victorious. It would, it would be a good idea, it would go well for your career if you'd say the same thing. Micaiah responds, as the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that will I speak. So Micaiah comes before the king of Israel and the king of Judah. And Ahab asks Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth-Gilead to battle or shall we refrain? Micaiah answers him, go up in triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. Now, Micaiah must have said this with an obvious amount of sarcasm because Ahab immediately recognizes that he's lying. He's mocking him. He says to Micaiah, how many times must I make you swear that you speak to me nothing but truth in the name of the Lord? That's called irony. He cares nothing about the truth in the name of the Lord. He doesn't want to be mocked. And so Micaiah says, in effect, you want the truth, I'll give you the truth. I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. Why? What happened to the shepherd? So Ahab turns to Jehoshaphat and says, did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me, only evil? See? But Micaiah wasn't done. He said, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead? And one said one thing and another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, by what means? And he said, I will go out to him and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And the Lord said, you are to entice him and you are to succeed. Go out and do so. 
Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these, your prophets, for the Lord has declared disaster concerning you. Now, the rest is a fascinating story. It's found in the last half of the chapter. The kings go to war anyway against Micaiah's council. Ahab is indeed killed. The shepherd is slain in battle by a one in a million shot from an Aramean archer. First Kings 22, 34 says a certain man drew his bow at random and and the arrow struck the king of Israel before the, between the scale armor and, and the breastplate. The armies of Israel are scattered on the mountains and return to their homes in defeat. And this is all God's predestined judgment against Ahab because of his wickedness and against Israel because of their idolatry. Now, what this story illustrates is that God's providential predestining purpose stands behind every thought, every action, every circumstance of man. And yet, every character in this story did just exactly what they wanted to do. King Ahab wanted to go to war against Ahab in order to assuage his broken pride. And so he did. Jehoshaphat wanted to aid Ahab in the war effort. Who knows for what reason? And so he did. The 400 false prophets wanted to prophesy victory in order to win the favor of the king. And so they did. The archer wanted to shoot his arrow in this direction and not that or that. And so he did. And thus all of the actors in this scene bear personal moral responsibility for their actions because their actions arose out of their own wills and they were not coerced to do any of them from an external force. But before, behind, beneath, and within it all was God's providential hand directing everything toward the fulfillment of his good and perfect purpose, which in this instance was judgment upon Ahab and the nation of Israel. This story pulls back the curtain for us and allows us to see things as they really are. It allows us to see events from the divine perspective as well as from the human perspective. God is more than a puppeteer, and we are more than puppets. God is absolutely sovereign, and we are responsible for our own actions, our own desires, and our own choices. Those who are saved are saved because God in his mercy made them willing to submit to his righteousness through faith. Those who are lost are lost because God left them to their own sinful, self-determinate wills. He did not make them unwilling. He gave them over to their unwillingness. He did not make them sinful. He gave them over to their sinful desires. And then, in his inscrutable sovereignty, he hardened them in it. He sealed them in their unbelief. God did not make Ahab wicked and godless. Rather, in his justice and wrath, he sealed Ahab in his wickedness. Ahab continued to pursue freely and unconstrained by any external force the object of his heart's desire, namely his own glory. And for that wickedness, he was judged. Neither does God constrain any sinner to sin against his will. Sinners sin by their own free volitional choice. And for that reason, they are responsible and accountable before the judgment of God. 
Now, my hope is that this somewhat lengthy introduction has gone some way towards resolving the the tension that may exist in your mind between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility because you must have some sense of cohesion between these two realities if you're going to understand how Paul can go from explaining Israel's accursed status in terms of God's purpose of election in verses 6 to 29 of Romans 9 to doing a 180 and explaining it in terms of Israel's stubborn refusal to submit to the righteousness of God in Romans 9.30 to the end of chapter 10. Paul's not speaking with a forked tongue. He's not speaking out of both sides of his mouth. God is absolutely sovereign and free in the dispensing of his mercy and his wrath, and Israel is responsible for her own unbelief. And, as we will see, the same is true of you. Now, we need not spend a great deal of time on the actual text this morning because Paul makes no new doctrinal or theological point. He simply applies the truth that he's already unpacked in Romans 1 to 8 to the situation of Israel and the Gentiles. So with that in mind, I'm going to draw out four points of application. The first is that the righteousness of God cannot be attained by works. This was, in Paul's estimation, Israel's fatal error. They thought that it could be. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law of righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. There are three things going on in these verses. First, Paul simply describes the state of affairs with respect to the issue of righteousness. Second, Paul explains why this state of affairs obtains. And then third, Paul confirms his analysis, as he so often does, with a quotation from the Old Testament. So what shall we say then? How do we describe from a human perspective, which is the realm in which we live and operate and, and, and go from day to day and make real choices, how can we explain from a human perspective the present state of affairs concerning Israel, the Gentiles, and the covenant? How... Has God's inscrutable purpose of election worked out in time and in human history? Well, the opposite of what one might have expected has transpired. Certainly the opposite of what the Jews expected. On the one hand, the pagan and godless Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, they've attained it. Now at this point, I think we need to stop and define righteousness. What Paul means by righteousness He does not mean that no Gentiles have ever pursued moral excellence. Paul's already indicated back in Romans chapter 2 that there are Gentiles who, though they do not have the law, do by nature what the law requires. It's Romans 2, 14 and 15. There are Gentiles who, over the course of history, have pursued the study of moral excellence. One thinks of the Greek philosophers, for instance. 
Rather, I think we should define righteousness in this passage as righteousness towards God. God directed righteousness. God centered righteousness. In other words, a life lived in conscious love, trust, worship, obedience, and enjoyment of God. A God-besotted life. The Gentiles did not care about pleasing God. They didn't know God. Yet, says Paul, they've attained righteousness. Then Paul immediately clarifies what he means. It's not that they stopped being godless and started being godly, and and on that basis God accepted them. No, they've received. You see that word? They've received, not earned, not merited. They've received the righteousness that comes by faith. Now, this should alert us to the fact that Paul is now back to defining humanity in terms of their relation to the gospel, the gospel of God's righteousness, that righteousness which God gives to sinners through faith and on the basis of which he justifies them in his sight. Gentiles who were not seeking to be righteous before God have been declared righteous before God. But Israel, who did pursue a law of righteousness, did not attain to that law. Okay, let's pause there. Now, before we proceed to to Paul's explanation of why this is the case in, in verse 32, let's just stop and observe that it is the case. Gentiles who don't pursue the righteousness of God have received the righteousness of God by faith. Jews who do pursue the righteousness of God have not attained it. That's the present state of affairs as Paul sees it. It's the present state of affairs today. Question is why? Well, Paul answers that question in verses 32, although he already hinted at it in 30 and 31. Notice the way that he framed the contrast between the Gentiles and and Israel, between what the Gentiles received and what Israel pursued but failed to attain. The Gentiles received a righteousness they did not pursue, namely the righteousness that is by faith. Israel, on the other hand, pursued a law of righteousness. And if you've read the first eight chapters of Romans, you know where Paul's going with this. That they failed to attain to that law. See what Paul's doing? Just in case you miss it, he's going to make it explicit in verse 32. Why did Israel fail to attain to the righteousness of God? Because they didn't pursue it by faith, but as though it were based on works. That was their fatal error. They thought that the righteousness of God that righteousness which God accepts and blesses with eternal life and fellowship, they thought that that righteousness could be achieved by works of the law. In other words, they operated with a view of God which says that if they do all the right things, they can lay a claim upon God and his blessing. In other words, they can put God in a position where he would have to bless them so that they are in the driver's seat. Well, this view of righteousness fails on three accounts. Number one, it overestimates the capacity of man. You see, if man is really as bad as Paul has said that he is, that is radically fallen, hopelessly corrupt, totally depraved, alienated from and hostile towards God. If that's the real state of man, he doesn't have the capacity for righteousness. The idea that a man could produce a righteousness before God is absurd if what Paul has said about man is true. 
Second problem with this view. It underestimates the holiness of God. If man is as bad as Paul says he is, then the only thing he can produce in the way of righteousness is something that is external, something that is legal, what Paul calls the righteousness of the law. But to think that such hypocritical external righteousness would be pleasing to God, to think that God could be satisfied with loveless obedience and joyless ritual is to radically underestimate God's holiness and his passion for his own glory. God doesn't want to just be obeyed. He wants to be loved, trusted, worshipped, enjoyed from the heart. That's why the first and greatest commandment is not do this and don't do that, but rather is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, because that's the only kind of response that is commensurate with his glory. And that's the only kind of response he's interested in. True righteousness is not about doing this, not doing that, It's not about keeping kosher or or offering the prescribed sacrifices at the right times. It's not about coming to church or reading your Bible or giving your tithes. True righteousness is loving, trusting, honoring, worship, obeying, enjoying God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength. That's the only kind of righteousness God accepts because that's the only righteousness worthy of God's glory. And how many fallen men can attain to that? Not one. For all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. Third problem with that view of righteousness, it nullifies the cross of Christ. If righteousness could be attained by fallen man in his own strength, then what, we may ask, was the purpose of Jesus? What was the purpose of his death? If fallen man were capable of amending his own ways and making himself acceptable in God's sight, that is, if fallen man were capable of justifying himself, then there's no need for a Savior and there's no reason for a Messiah. As Paul says in Galatians, if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. But Christ did come and he did die, as Paul's gospel declares, which means that man must be utterly incapable of justifying himself before God. Even our best efforts, even our most righteous acts are as filthy rags in his sight. Now this is a massive offense to human pride, isn't it? It's a massive offense to human autonomy, to human self-determination, to our desire to be like God knowing good and evil. Our flesh resists with every fiber of its being the notion that we're radically wicked or or deserving of God's judgment and wrath. If we're raised in church, we may say that we believe that. But if you unfold the dark recesses of your heart, you don't really think so. We resist the notion that we're helpless to save ourselves and therefore are utterly dependent upon the grace of God in Christ. This is why the Jews in particular stumbled over Jesus. The ministry and the message of Jesus is a standing affront to human self-sufficiency, to human religiosity, to human boasting. 
To the proud and the self-sufficient, Jesus is a stumbling stone. He's a rock over which they trip and fall and then rise up and kick aside and curse. So as is his habit, Paul confirms this statement with a passage from the Old Testament. This one's a, a conflation of Isaiah 28, 16 and Isaiah 8, 14. He says, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, which once again highlights the sovereignty of God over Israel's rejection. God knew that they would stumble over this rock of offense. He placed it there in order that they would do so. But that's not the rock's sole or primary purpose. Whoever believes in him will not be ashamed. That is, whoever will humble himself and rather than tripping and falling over his rock, this rock will take his stand upon the rock in faith will not be disappointed. Instead, he'll be justified. He'll receive from God a righteousness that is acceptable in God's sight, not by works, not by the law, but by grace through faith. So the first lesson of this text is that the righteousness of God, God's justifying verdict, is not attained by works. It's not attained by religious or moral effort. You are not going to get right with God by doing stuff. There's a second application that arises from this text. Although it's rather incidental to the main point, it does come from this first verse. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. You remember at the beginning of Romans chapter 9, Paul expressed his unceasing anguish of heart over Israel's unbelief and present accursed state. Now he goes further. Not only is he anguished over his fellow Israelites, he prays for them. He longs for their salvation. Now, this may not seem odd until we remember that Paul has spent the entire last chapter explaining Israel's unbelief in terms of God's sovereign decree of election and reprobation. So what are we to make of this? Here, I think, is the point. Evidently, God's purpose of election does not preclude our fervent longing and prayer for the salvation of the lost. Now again, I'm arguing from the fact that nobody understands the doctrine of election better than the Apostle Paul, and yet Paul earnestly desires and fervently prays for his lost countrymen whom he knows to be accursed. In other words, the doctrine of election did not result for Paul in some kind of fatalism or determinism. If God's already decided who's going to be saved, then what's the point of praying for them? What's the point of preaching to them? What's the point of missions? What's the point of evangelism? Those words never escape from Paul's lips. And I think we ought to take our cue from the apostle. Let God be God. Leave election to him. Don't try to peer into his hidden counsels. Rather, be like Paul. Love people. Long for their salvation. Pour out your heart in prayer to God for them and then go give your life in order to get the gospel to them in order that they might be saved. In fact, the only reason you can be confident that your prayers and your preaching will be effective is because God has unconditionally elected a people to salvation from all eternity. That's a sermon for another time. Third, verse 2. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. All right, so why? Why does Paul earnestly long and fervently pray for the salvation of his brethren? Because they're not saved. 
even though their zeal for God is beyond question. It's unmatched. They're not saved. Even though their devotion to God was sincere, sincerity does not save. You can be sincerely wrong. Now, Paul, of course, knew this from experience, didn't he? Numerous times he testifies to the devotion to God that he had in his his unconverted state. How extraordinarily zealous he was for God and for the law and for the traditions of the fathers. But where did his zeal lead him? It led him to the road to Damascus carrying letters to put from the high priest in order to put Christians to jail in order that they might die and he might squash out this Jewish sect that follows this fabled Jewish prophet from Galilee. The problem was that his zeal was not according to knowledge. It was not according to truth. He thought Jesus was an imposter. He thought Christ's disciples were frauds. He thought God was pleased with his efforts at law-keeping righteousness, and he was dead wrong. Zeal that is not according to and directed toward truth is not a virtue. It is deadly, and it's damning. Where on earth did we get this notion that sincerity as opposed to truth is what really matters? Well, he's he's a very sincere Mormon. They're very sincere Muslims. She's a very sincere Jew. So? Does being more committed to an error make it any less erroneous? All three of those belief systems trample upon the glory of Christ. So knowledge without zeal is hypocrisy, but zeal without knowledge is heresy, and both of them are damning. So what is the truth? What is the knowledge toward which the Jews should have directed their zeal? Paul answers that question in verses 3 and 4. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God, seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Here Paul exposes the root error of unbelieving Israel, indeed the root error of all unconverted religious folks ever since. The error contains three basic elements. First, they were ignorant of the righteousness of God. Now here I want to dial in on that phrase, the righteousness of God, because it's supremely important in Romans. By righteousness of God, Paul means five things. I'm just going to tick them off real quick and give you some verses. Number one, by righteousness of God, Paul means that righteousness which God requires of all mankind. Namely, to love, trust, worship, obey, and enjoy him completely. Romans 8, 4. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. The whole goal of redemption is to create a people in whom the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled. God wants to be loved. Second. By righteousness of God, Paul means that righteousness which all men fail to attain. None are righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Third, 
By righteousness of God, Paul means that righteousness which God then gives through faith apart from works because of Christ. Romans 3.21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Fourth, the righteousness of God means that righteousness on the basis of which God justifies the unrighteous through faith. Romans 5.18, therefore as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness, that is the death of Christ for sinners, leads to justification and life for all men. So by righteousness of God, Paul means the righteousness which Jesus achieved, which through faith God will then take and give to a believing sinner. Which on, on the basis of which then God will accept that believing sinner as if that believing sinner were as righteous as Christ. Fifth, by righteousness of God, Paul means that righteousness which is the central message of the gospel. This is what the gospel is all about. It's about the righteousness of God. Commanded. Failed to attain. Given in Christ, on the basis of which God justifies us. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. God commands this righteousness of all who would enter into his presence. No man has attained to it except Christ. God is willing to give the righteousness of Christ to the sinner who believes. And on the basis of that righteousness, he is willing to justify that sinner, embrace him, enter into covenant with him. And that's the central message of the gospel. That is what Israel did not know. That's what they were ignorant of. All they knew was not the righteousness of God. All they knew was the righteousness of the law. Do this, do that, don't do that, and God will have to accept you. But the righteousness of the law is no righteousness at all. Second element of their error, they sought to establish their own righteousness. Okay, So God gave Israel a law. Now, the purpose and point of that law is, again, a topic for another time, but I can tell you what the purpose wasn't. God did not give Israel a law in order that they might seek to fulfill it in their own power and for the purpose of their own pride, in order that they may waltz up to God on the day of judgment and say, well, here's my resume, here's my religious timesheet, now let me into your kingdom. The law, to borrow my favorite metaphor, was given to us as a a railroad, the track of holiness and joy leading to glory by grace through faith. What Israel did was to rip up this this railroad, to, to turn it on its end, set it up like a ladder against the portals of heaven and begin to climb to heaven one commandment at a time. On the strength of their own merit and the strength of their own works. The righteousness of the law is not the same thing as the righteousness of God. The righteousness of the law can only be external, hypocritical ritualism. It can never be loving, joyful, faithful obedience. 
In other words, true righteousness. The third component of their error. When finally confronted with the righteousness of God through the preaching of the gospel, Israel refused to submit to it. They rejected it. They rejected Christ, who is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. You see, to embrace Christ as your only hope, as your only Savior, as your only Lord, to receive him, to believe on him, is to say, my righteousness, the righteousness of the law, my efforts, my, my trying to be good, to do the right thing, to avoid the wrong things, to be religious, to go to church, all of those efforts is insufficient. It's only half-hearted obedience, not born of love, not born of legalism. I wouldn't accept that from my own kids. I don't think that you'll accept that from me. My heart is radically fallen. I can never love or honor God in any way that is worthy of his glory. Therefore, I must forsake my own righteousness and rely upon the righteousness of another, namely that of Christ. Christ died to atone for my sins and he gives me his righteousness as a gift of his grace. That saving faith. Israel said, no, we'd rather have the law. When someone embraces Christ like that, the righteousness of the law for that person has been ended. It's been terminated. Verse 4 is simply saying that there are two kinds of righteousness. The righteousness of God received by faith and the righteousness of the law attained by works. And only one kind of righteousness justifies and it's not the law kind. When a person believes on Christ and receives him as their righteousness, that second way vanishes. It disappears. It's ended. It's terminated. The hamster wheel of works, right? Always running, never actually getting anywhere. It vanishes. And all that remains for the believer is the justifying verdict of God. By faith, you are righteous in my sight. I accept you. I embrace you as my, as my child. I give to you my life, my covenant, my fellowship, my kingdom. Forever. Beloved, don't make the same mistake Israel made. Don't stumble over the stumbling stone. Do not let your pride take offense at Christ. Rather, take your stand upon the rock. Embrace with all of your heart the truth that you've heard today. You need the righteousness of God in order for him to accept you, to enter into covenant with you, to let you into his kingdom. But you cannot attain that righteousness by trying harder to do better and to be more. It's not attained by efforts. It's not attained by sincerity. It's not attained by zeal. The fact of the matter is you must love, trust, honor, obey, and worship God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength. And you can't do that. But Jesus did. And he did it as a substitute for you. He did it on your behalf. And therefore, what the gospel is crying out to you to do is to say, I'm going to let go of all of my half-hearted efforts, and I'm going to empty my hands of them, and I'm going to cling only to Jesus. I'm going to take his righteousness. But I can't take his righteousness until I forsake my own righteousness. So, ugh, I don't want that. It doesn't work. I'm going to have Christ. I want him and him alone. 
Don't try to establish your own righteousness. Don't try to build your own case for why God should let you into heaven. Cease your striving and rely on Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I've tried my best to make the gospel clear this morning. And I pray that you, by your spirit, will make it clear. Make it clear, make it evident, make it seen in this place this morning. That it would be very clear to every person here that there is a choice that lies before them. It is real and it has real consequences. There is a righteousness of the law. Do more, be better, try harder. Make yourself acceptable to God. That is born of pride, it is futile, it won't work. God leads your people to reject it. Rather, there is a righteousness of God that comes through Christ and is received by faith. Lord, stretch out the hands of our hearts and wrap them around Jesus and his righteousness as our only claim for heaven. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked I come to thee for dress, hopeless I look to thee for grace. Foul I to thy fountain fly, wash me Savior, or I die. God, inject that kind of desperation into your people that they may cling to Christ with all of their hope and say with the hymn writer, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. I'm not gonna stumble on him. I'm gonna stand on him. Because all other ground is sinking sand. Make that your hope, beloved. And you will never be ashamed. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.